started that month. Yeah. And so I that I never I always wanted to do this book, so that's why I'm joining the. I know, I know, I know. It's just I'm. Thank you. So thank you. Yeah. Um. I'm going to mute everybody, um, but hi Dave, hi Kay, good to see you. Um, can you hear me? David Kay, can you hear? You'd, okay. Um, any, let's start, any prayer requests? I'm, Connie, I've got yours, so, but... Any other prayer requests, or I'm, if I can treat them as prayer requests, I didn't. Any other prayer requests? Um, okay. Let's. Um, Maria, you're back. Let's 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 start. What's Connie's mom's name? Jackie. Jackie. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um. <laughs> what an amazing faith we have! What an amazing faith. Um, people go about their daily lives as if nothing more than, you know, making a nice home or all good things, having a family. Um, God, you call us to a cross, you call us to a cross, I'm sorry, I'm, um, Michael, it's, um, um, good to see you, Mike, we're just, we're just starting prayers, so your timing's really good, um, we, we just started prayers. Sorry for joining late. No, 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 I'm really glad you're here, I've missed you, I've, I'm, it's good to see you. Two weeks absent. Yeah, that's two weeks of F's, just, just so you know. Um, We're taken. <laughs> um, what an amazing faith we have. Um, we are here together. Lots of people go on and talk to programs and um, express their convictions about usually political things. <laughs> We're here apart a little bit. Everybody here is very much of the world. Bob's a doctor. Um, Melody's husband has got a job that takes her husband everywhere, and I always have a feeling that Connie's by somebody's bedside. <laughs> God. Anyway, we're everywhere, here and there, um, but um, I'm so glad for Connie's request, or at least her talking about it. I ask a blessing for all of us and whatever burdens we carry, particularly in our families, our marriages and with our kids. They are the center of our life and that center is under attack. I mean, everything about our culture is, I'm, I'm saying this seriously everybody, or at least my own belief about it is that, that everything in our culture is directed at our families, um, our marriages, our families, our relationship with our kids. It's the center of continuity. Without our families, we don't go forward, and there's so much that's destructive. 
that we could gather together and hear Connie's prayers for her mother-in-law, Jackie. Jackie. Huh? Yes. Um, and she, God, Connie, I just feel so humbled, bless your soul, I'm saying that genuinely, that we could share with another person the approaching death of somebody she loves, that that can be a part of our hearts. What a great gift. Sort of puts our literature to shame. And Joe, who has um but, but it's part of what we're doing. Um, I, I hope I'm speaking for everybody. I'm glad that we can be a part of Connie's grief, and I'm trusting, pardon me, Connie, if I'm misspeaking here, her joy to turn loose of Jackie. She's not young. She's been a long life. She's, to have lived that long means she's suffered a lot. She's going to go to a place, hopefully, that will be free of any suffering, she will know the joy behind everything she's lived for. Connie should be glad, so should we. Strengthen us in our efforts, please, to hold on to the sorrows we feel when we let go of somebody, but the joy we feel in the hope um, that they're going to a joy, to be with you, to be free of all this. Um, so, most of all, thank you, Lord, for our faith and the place it has in our lives. Um, ask a special blessing on Joe um, in his recovery. Um, God, <laughs> um, could anybody ask for anything more than to have somebody like Connie at your bedside all the time? I mean, God, she's, <laughs> she's um, constantly bringing all these people to us and glad to share them through her. What a great, what a great gift to us. Watch over him in his recovery, help him, and equally importantly, um, be with Connie in her heart and the way she offers it to those she loves. Um, I ask a special blessing on the work we're doing. I personally believe that Boethius is at the center of our faith. He's, he's helping us to see something about you that, that so many educated people today just do not know, and they think they're educated. God. Anyway, a great gift to us, um, certainly for me and Suzanne. Um, continue to bless us in the work that we're doing together. More importantly, help us to take this work that we're doing to the world. Help us to make a greater defense of our faith, our Catholic faith. Um, not be afraid of what people will think. To stand with you, with good minds, good hearts bringing you to all we do. Help us to be strengthened in this by the work that we're doing. We offer these prayers in your name. Wait a second. Sorry. I ask for a blessing on um, Melody. Melody, what's your husband's name? Kevin. And Kevin. Um, uh, be with Kevin, most of all because what he has to put up with with Melody. Um, <laughs> And um, with all her, <laughs> all her amazing questions, um, how long have you been married? Thirty-two years. Thirty-two years, God, what a gift to each other. Watch over them. Um, watch over him. Keep him safe in his travels, um, and in financially, in business terms, whatever.
whatever happens as the tomb go forward. And let that be so for all of us. It's an uncertain time. This virus has shaken everybody and thrown everybody off. Help us to keep our ground with you. No matter what happens, no matter what's going on around us, no matter what we lose, please help us to keep our footing with you. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Oh, Melly, you didn't ask for their prayers. I'm hoping you're okay with them. Thank you. Yeah. I do appreciate it. God, I cannot tell you the love I'm feeling, the growing for you guys, that, that you are doing this at all is amazing to me. Okay, let's finish um, the knowns in Auden's. We love you too, by the way. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, grateful for that. Say. Do you have my coffee? Dark. It was here. Can you turn that light on? Okay. Very, very briefly, if I can. You remember that um, we don't know it when the poem begins, but the poem begins on Good Friday. So from one perspective, it seems like any other day. Um, the narrator of the poem wakes up. Um, in the morning, um, it's prime time. Um, it's dawn or sunrise, usually six. Simultaneously, soundlessly, spontaneously, suddenly, as at the dawn of the dawn, the kind gates of the body fly open to its world beyond the gates of the mind, the, uh, the horn gate and the ivory gate. You guys know something about that now that most of the readers in the world don't know, because you know that Aeneas had a choice to and, and, and generally in the ancient world, it was understood that, that um, I mean, there was a major belief in reincarnation so that people returned to the world and went back to it. Then when they left the underworld and returned to our world, they, they had a choice to go through the horn gate and the ivory gate. You know that, that Aeneas chose the ivory gate, which is the gate of false dreams. The gate swing to, swing shut instantaneously, quell, the nocturnal rummage of its rebellious frond, ill-favored, ill-natured, and second-rate, disenfranchised, widowed, orphaned. That's that whole underworld of dark experiences. And I'm, I, I, I think I can speak for most of us here that very often we have dark dreams, that, that dark dreams, sometimes troubling dreams, take us into our own personal life and reveal something Remember that um, Freud was the great genius exploring that. I, I have no good words to say about Freud. None. None. That his philosophy to me is um, inhuman. Um, he, he had an opening on the, on the unconscious, and I think he, he presented it faithfully to what's there. I think he also shortchanged it. I mean, he, he darkened with a dark view of his own. Freud had no, con no concept of the spiritual unconscious. The unconscious as he knew it was somatic, it was connected with our body. So were all these dark forces, sexual forces that I believe in all of, that are in all of us. They're there. But he had no sense of a spiritual unconscious. He didn't believe that man had free will. He didn't believe in God. So what he did was take all the divine things and shrink them down into some inhuman form. But here, 
Auden is saying that we're coming out of that, of its rebellious frond, that dark world, into the waking world of life, and in that sense, innocent like Adam. But as soon as we act, we enter a fallen world and we find, or at least he presents us, as beginning to participate in what is a scapegoating action. That we will make a victim of somebody in whatever we do. We will turn somebody into a victim. And you know that that's one of the um, buried motifs through all the sections, through the terse and the sext. Remember in the terse that the hangman sets off, the judge sets off, the poet sets off, and but all of them set off with this expectation that this will be a good day. And, and I think Auden is so close to the modern psyche in the way he uses words because those are the phrases that so many of us take into our day. I, you know, we meet somebody and they'll say, have a good day, have a good day, hope you have a good day. And we want to get through the day with no problems, except if we live with Christ, it seems to me I don't know how we cannot have problems because there's nothing he did that didn't make for problems um, with the Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders, his disciples. He was bringing a transcendent spirit into our world. So everything he did unsettled it. The first section ends um, that all of us hope um, that the machinery of the world will function without a hitch, that today for once there will be no squabbling on Mount Olympus, no Chthonian mutters of unrest, but no other miracle known knows that by sundown we shall have had a good Friday. The sex begins, you remember those three groups of people, and I don't want to go over them, just remind you of the, the third one because I thought it was so powerful. The third, the first one talked about those people who have this sense of vocation. They are so essential to our civilization because they make the civilization healthy. They focus on things. The next group had to do with people in authority. Same thing. Without them, our civilization wouldn't develop. According to those three sections in, the, in that section, um, 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 we, would, we would remain in a feral state like animals. So in the sext, he's showing us these three groups, the last of which is this crowd. And he describes it. You remember he said, the crowd sees only one thing which only the crowd can see. Um, because everybody else is preoccupied with whatever is in front of them. An epiphany of that which does whatever is done. It's like they go along with whatever's there without even knowing that they're going along with it. Whatever God a person believes in, in whatever way he believes, no two are exactly alike, as one of the crowd he believes and only believes in that in which there is only one way of believing, because that's what defines the crowd. It's this way. Few people accept each other, and most will never do anything properly. But the crowd rejects no one. Joining the crowd is the only thing all men can do. Only because of that can we say all men are our brothers superior because of that to the social exoskeleton. So there's this great gift that the crowd represents. It's this good quality. At the same time, how there's this irony, and it's been present through the whole poem. When have they ever ignored their queens for one second, stop work on their provincial cities to worship the prince of this world like us, because we worship him, we 
were too caught up in the world. At this noon, on this hill, in the occasion of this dying. And he keeps ending these sections on a note of dying, but we never understand quite yet what's going on, this scapegoat, this, remember, the judge, the hangman, there's going to be this victim. The, the victim is the only one who stands outside of this world because he's, he's the object of it all. Um, the knowns begins what we know to be not possible, though time after time foretold by wild hermits, by shaman and sibyl, gibbering in their trances, or revealed to a child in some chance rhyme. It's everywhere. Everything that's ever been written points to one thing. Everything. There's nothing in the world that will not imply Christ. Not before he came, not after. He was the beginning, he's the end. The world may want to get around it, but everything points to it. Um, remember we talked about um, the first half of the knowns that um, that this event takes place. It is barely three mid-afternoon, yet the blood of our sacrifice is already dry on the grass. We are not prepared for silence so sudden and so soon. The day is too hot. I mean, you can hear people in the crowd saying, it's too hot, I don't want to be here, I want to go indoors. Too bright. That is, It's not the way they want it. There's something wrong with everything. Too still, too ever. The dead remains to nothing. What shall we do till nightfall? Boy, his, his ironies are so much like Eliot's. They're so cutting. You know, these people want to go through the day. This is three o'clock. This, this is the hour at which Christ was executed. And this is Good Friday, and most people have no sense of what it means. And remember, I think it's important to keep in mind here that when Christ died, there were lots of people. I mean, there were, it had to be a minority of people who actually shared in his death. The majority of the people had no clue what was going on. Who's this guy being crucified? Just another criminal. He's just another man. God wouldn't fit on a cross, right? If he's God, he'd be on Mount Olympus tearing humans apart or doing... God doesn't fit on a cross. So whoever this guy was would have been no reason for paying attention to anything except for the few who loved him. Um, the day's too hot, too bright, too still, too ever, the dead remains to nothing. What shall we do till midnight fall? The wind has dropped and we have lost our public, the faceless many who always collect. You know, everybody will go back to work. Nobody will say anything. Um, nobody will remember why he shouted or what about. That's the crowd, because they all said, crucify him, crucify him. What did they know? What did they understand? Did they have any clue? All of them will go back to work, and none of them will remember why he shouted or what about. So loudly in the sunshine this morning, as if challenged, would reply, it was a monster with one eye, with one red eye. A crowd that saw him die, not I. Is it to explain this phenomenon took place, that this man died on a cross? They describe it the way you would a child in a fairy tale. It was a monster with a red eye. The crowd that saw him die, not I. The hangman has gone back to wash, the soldiers to eat. We are left alone with our feet. And then there's that series of um, descriptions. I was so glad for Tina's question last week. Madonna with the green woodpecker <coughs> on the fig tree beside the yellow arm. 
turn their kind faces from us and our projects under construction look only in one direction, fix their gaze on our completed work, pile driver, everybody goes back to work. The interesting thing about those Madonnas is remember Mary is Christ's mother. If there was ever a woman who had a reason for disrupting her work at any moment in her life, it would have been then. This was her son. She believed that something holy was going on because she was an obedient Jewish woman. She read the scriptures. She gave her life to the law. She watched her son perform miracles. She saw him bring people back to life. If ever a, a woman, a mother, ever had reason to get angry or emotionally upset at something, it would have been Mary. Except here we have these descriptions, the Madonna with the green woodpecker, the Madonna of the fig tree, beside the yellow dam, turn their kind faces from us and our projects under construction. Her mind is elsewhere. She, she carries the love of her son. She brings a completely different attitude to everything going on in the world while people go back to work. Okay. So, um, this mutilated flesh, our victim explains too negatively too well the spell of the asparagus garden. Women will go back planting, name of our chalk pit game, stamps, collecting birds' eggs, whatever it should be. Behind the rapture on the spiral stair. I'm not sure what that means, I'm, it, but it's, it's close to a line in Elliot in the Ash Wednesday. Um, Bob, you may have, I, you're probably not there yet, but when you get to the Purgatory and Dante, you're going to, Dante and Virgil are going to move from one level to another through stairs. So it's a stairway. I think the illusion's there, I'm not sure. We shall always now be aware of the deed unto which they lead, under the mock chase and the mock capture. People play this game of chasing after something and capturing it. Once again, um, Christ and, Christ is the beginning and end of all things. Every game in its nature, going after something, presumes him. And every capture, every getting to the game, you know, winning, implies him. He's the, everything in the world, nothing will take another form. It all implies him, even if people don't see it. The mock, the mock chase, the mock capture, the racing, tussling, splashing, all of it. The sun shines, brooks run, books are written. There will also be this death. So we're at a point now where the death has taken place and people are going to go on with their lives. Okay, so now I'm just, I'm going to read the last part and, um, and do my best not to comment, to, to say as little as I can and just let the poem speak for itself. The um, Tramontana um, is a wind from across the mountain, like um, Ultramontana. It's across the mountain, so it's an alien wind. It's a strange wind. Um, so it's looked at that way as something strange. Um, Abaddon and Belial were two of the um, gods from the Old Testament that led the Jewish people astray. They're the gods that people worship once they turn away from Yahweh. So there, and Abaddon um, was distinct in one, say, be, in one sense because in one, in one way he... Um, that name refers to a particular god, but it all—it also refers to a condition. It's the dark pit. 
it's the the pit into which everybody goes. Um, what did what was the Jewish name for it? Um, Gehenna. Gehenna, yeah, another name for Gehenna. So the second part of noons. This is the time of the day in the monastery, mid noon, on Good Friday, that marked the crucifixion. So it's at this point that the victim has um, been crucified. The scapegoat has been created, and people go on about their work. Okay. Soon cool Tremontana will stir the leaves. The shops will reopen at four. The empty blue bus in the empty pink square fill up and depart. We have time to misrepresent, excuse, deny, mythify, use the event while under a hotel bed, in prison, down wrong turnings, I'm assuming somebody under a bed hiding, it's a affair, I'm not sure, in prison, down wrong turnings. Its meaning waits for our lives. Sooner than we would choose, bread will melt, water will burn, and great quail begin. Abaddon set up his triple gallows at our seven gates. Fat Belial make our wives waltz naked. The sexual activities, the activities of our appetites. Um, Fat Belial make our wives waltz naked. Meanwhile, it would be best to go home if we have a home. In any case, good to rest. <laughs> We're glad to get away from our labors. That our dreaming wills may seem to escape this dead calm, wander instead on knife edges, on black and white squares, across moss, bays, velvet, boards, over cracks and hill hillocks, and mazes of string and penitent cones, down granite ramps and damp passages, through gates that will not relatch, and doors marked private. Pursued by moors and watched by latent robbers, to hostile villages at the heads of fjords, to dark chateau where wind sobs, in the pine trees and telephones ring, inviting trouble to a room lit by one weak bulb where our double sits writing and does not look up. The, God, the, the ironies are so sword sharp, sworded sharp. You know, he's describing everybody going on, and he's including himself, sorry, he, he's including himself in these ironic descriptions, because where our double sits writing and does not look up is a description of Auden as his double, a man detached from all of this while writing about it. So you remember that image of, a, the image of, image of ourselves, that play on, you know, that we worship the image of the image of ourselves. Here he's including himself, where our double, it's like the image of himself, sits at a desk writing poetry um, and is aware that in that fact he separated himself from the very thing he's talking about. That while we are thus away, our own wrong flesh may work undisturbed, restoring the order we try to destroy, the rhythm we spoil out of spite. Valves closed. Now remember the description because no matter what's going on spiritually with us, we all have a body. So even though this traumatic experience has just taken place, this thing, our bodies will go on. Our hearts will pump. The cells will multiply. They will refresh. Our bodies will go on doing mechanically what they do. Valves close and open exactly. Glands secrete. Vessels contract and expand. 
at the right moment, everything according to schedule until something happens. Essential fluids flow to renew exhausted cells, not knowing quite what has happened, but awed by death like all the creatures now watching this spot, like the hot looking down without blinking, the smug hens passing close by in their pecking order, the bug whose view is balked by grass, or the deer who shyly from afar peer through chinks in the forest. God, God, the, the ironies are almost too sharp for me. Everybody's going about their business. Our heart, our bodies could do what they do. And while all of this happens, I mean, when this, just a, when this happens and just after, when everybody's going back to work, all the animals are looking at it as if there's something there. They don't have a consciousness. They have no idea, but they're all fixed. It's like nature is aware. Central fluids flow to renew exhausted sail, not knowing quite what has happened, but awed by death like all the creatures now watching this spot, like the hot looking down with it. If this was the God, this is the beginning of John, in the beginning was the Word, then the Word created everything. There's nothing that doesn't have the stamp of Christ's order on it, as Christ's image. Not, not a living thing, not a bug, not a spider, not a wolf, not anything. Every animal has an order, a purpose, a beauty to itself, some form that suggests a creator. It's got an end, a purpose, a beauty, an order, each to itself. And every one of these things whose creator was Christ is watching this spot even if they have no idea what's going on. How could it be otherwise? It's like all of nature is somehow oriented to that moment. Now watching the spot like the hawk looking down without blinking, the smug hens passing close by in their pecking order, the bug whose view is balked by grass, or the deer who shyly from afar peer through chinks in the... They're all doing what they do. They're going about their worlds, and yet they're all watching that spot. So something has just happened, something that most of the world walks around it. Nature is paying attention in some way, even if it can't understand it. Um, and this is the third hour. It's the hour marking Christ's death on Good Friday. So let me stop, and um, we'll get to Boethius. Any, any, put that, go ahead. Not the third hour. Or, it's three o'clock. Sorry, it's, the, it's three o'clock, sorry. It's the ninth, it's the ninth hour. It's three o'clock, sorry, three o'clock in the afternoon. Be grateful for my wife. <laughs> she keeps me from being a mess to you guys. Any, any questions about what's going on in this Auden poem? Melody, what's your response? You, you, what's your response? Well, I thought it was interesting what struck me, which is probably totally wrong. Um, the animals, the, the pecking order of the animals, like the hawk is looking down, and I understand they're looking at the spot that Christ died, but also I thought, 
The hawk was looking down at the hen, and he could very well swoop down and eat the hen. And the hen was looking down at the bug, but the hen didn't know the hawk was there. And the hen was looking down at the bug, which she could eat at any second, but, but she didn't. And the bug, you know, so nobody was, no one was conscious of the impending doom that they might they might endure, you know, if the hawk were to come down and eat right. the hen, wow. the hen were to come down and get the bug, or the deer, you know, if somebody were out there. Yeah. So I just thought that was kind of interesting, kind of like the description of um, the, the cells and the glands and everything in our bodies working. We're not aware of it, but all of that could stop just like it did for Christ. Um, and I don't know if I'm probably just reading a lot into that part of it, but that struck me. No, I thought that was wonderful. I'd get on you about starting by saying it's probably all wrong and being negative like that, but <laughs> you, you know I'm going to hit everybody over the head I can when I, um, no, I thought that was beautiful. That, that, no, I didn't, I didn't see that, but I think you're absolutely on. The interesting th- thing about that, um, we just did Hemingway and um, St. Francis, or a short while ago. And we talked about how Hemingway came out of that generation in which Freud and Darwin and Marx and, you know, all the ideologues of the, of the 20th century early um, were presenting these theories and all of them were based on scientific determinisms that things have to be. That's the nature of science. Science deals with what can't be other than it is. These are laws. And all of them grew up under those determinisms and in that world humans um, were products of forces over which we had no control, we had no free will. Freud didn't believe in free will. I mean, so the writers that grew up in that period were, you know, were living in a culture in which there was this horrible demeaning of the human person going on. And it's continued to our day. I mean, it's really not changed. The, The view of the human person in the culture at large, the view of marriage and children and you know, abortion. There's so much that shows we've lost some sense of being created in the image of God. I mean, let me put it that way. But if you read Old Man on the Sea, it's impossible to read it without seeing image, uh, Hemingway present these images of a nature that's seen largely in terms of self-preservation. The hawk will eat the, you know, he's flying over the fish, he will eat the fish, the, fee- the fish will eat other. Cupids are a part of that. Santiago the fisherman is his mind is shaped by all that and so I I think one of the great things about Old Man on the Sea is that Hemingway um, presents a figure in that context and helps him in some ways a little bit I I believe transcend it to not let it define him And and I think it's his greatest work because he does that it's very short work, but but it goes to the point that you're making. If you if you look at the animals the way you describe them, I thought that was really bright, um, Melody. That there's a principle of self-preservation. You know, the hawk looks at the hands, and the hens look, and um, that for a moment that instinct is suspended. Something stops, and so I thought you I thought your point was just beautifully made. It's what it does is reinforce the significance of that moment. So, any other 
comments or thoughts on this before we leave it? Connie, we keep seeing you in a different room of the house. What? <laughs> I can't believe you've got a computer in every room and that you don't take a computer to every... So what are you doing? It's an, it's, it's an iPad. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, no other, no other questions before we go on? Um... I'm going to embarrass somebody here because it's just like me. Um, Marilyn showed up at our house a couple days ago with a gift and I was, she's, she doesn't have a camera so we don't see her view, but I just, I know you're not going to like me for doing this, Marilyn, but I just want to thank you and, you know, in the presence of everybody for your kindness. So thank you for doing that. You were kind to do that. Okay. Um, okay. Boethius. We start in Boethius. Um, Bob, I don't want to admit you. The Dante, Bob said before we got going that he started, he wanted to get a peek at Dante. You're reading, I hope you're reading the Musa translation. Is that the one you're using? Oh, good. Yeah, good. If any, you know that Boethius is short, so any of you want to go on and start the Divine Comedy will, you know, it'd be a great boost for you because, I, I mean, I, I, in terms of length, I don't think it's longer than the Iliad, but in terms of complexity, there's not another work that will reach it. Um, Dante's language is the language of a sixth grader. You, you won't have any tr understand, difficulties understanding his language at all. But the complexity of the world that he's representing, nobody gets close to except Shakespeare. There's just nobody. Um, one of the parallels between Boethius and Dante is that um, Boethius is a character and a writer. You know that he's writing a story about himself. He's feeling sorry for himself. Lady Philosophy comes to him and tries to help him. Um, that's exactly the method Dante uses in the Divine Comedy. Dante starts by describing himself starting to go up this mountain because he wants to get to God and he can't make it on his own. Virgil comes to help him and then Virgil helps him go down into hell and then up purgatory and finally into the heavens. It's probably the richest work that's ever been written and I don't think he could have written it without Boethius or Plato or Aristotle. I mean. At that, at that point in history, learned people took in this tradition. Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Aquinas, Augustine, Boethius. So the, by, time, by the time Dante's writing, he's got this rich tradition. But I, um, Boethius' example, I think, is major to it. So if anybody wants to start on it, um, you'll enjoy it. It's a, it's a wonderful story. It's just great as a story. It's, it's, it's not philosophic the way the constellation is. It's a story. But there's not a line in that story that doesn't assume a philosophy. So by the time you get through with the Divine Comedy, you suddenly feel, are aware, that you have a philosophic view of life. 
what it'll do is take Boethius and just expand it and deepen it tremendously. So everything we're doing right now is, is the consolation is a great work in itself, but it marks a turning point. It's pointing towards St. Thomas and the Trinity and to Chaucer and Shakespeare and and it's at that point after Chaucer and Shakespeare and the Renaissance that the whole modern world begins and we are in we're in a very very different world. Um, so this is the world leading up to modernity um, where we are today. Okay. So Boethius, let's let's go. Um, if um, by the way, you you all you all are having no problems accessing the blog, right? You you go to literature's prophecy. You you go to the bottom of that that um, content page to the two sites to Saint to Elizabeth Seaton, and you click on the medieval folder, and in that you've got a number of authors. One of them is Boethius. So you're all getting to that, all right? Yes. Okay. So you all have your outline. Um, just quick review. I want to touch on three themes. The themes, um, the major, the sort of background themes, and then the themes of the work itself, and then the technique. One of the major questions we're going to get to today, that it's going to conclude the third chapter, and this is a setup for four and five. So, I'm next week. I'm planning on doing four and five. I'm not sure that we'll get to it. I think, I think it's realistic to think that we'll probably do four next week and five the afterward afterwards the week afterwards because they're just they're they're simple they're they're simply put but the concepts are really difficult and I'd like to take time so we'll probably spend two more weeks on Boethius on um, chapters four next week and five the week after but one of the questions that Boethius asks at the end of book three that we'll get to in a minute is does God do evil um, and it, it seems to me its relevance to the book is great because you know that the book's dealing essentially with the Job question. Why does God allow evil in the world? So the, the question that Lady Philosophy comes to is not a small one. Does God do evil? H how, can, how can God allow evil in the world unless he himself has some evil in him? So Boethius is going to a a difficult question, but we'll, we'll get to it. But that's been one of the key questions that we've been facing from the beginning. In the Job story, you remember, or those of you who've read it, if you haven't, you, all of you need to read it. It begins with the devil confronting God and saying, Job's a hypocrite. He's only doing this for himself. Let him be tested and you'll see what a bad man he is. So God allows the, the devil, Satan, to tempt Job. So it's a story in which God is giving permission for evil because he trusts his creator, his creation, to survive that test. So the central question of, in Job, in the Job story, is why does God allow good people to suffer and evil people to prosper? That directly bears in Boethius because you know that he was accused by people in the Senate of doing something he didn't do and he's going to be executed. So this isn't, this isn't a story about some guy having to suffer accusations. 
This is a story about a guy who's going to lose his life because the accusation because of the accusations made against him. So this fundamental question, does God does God do evil? Can can we explain why not? If you guys had to go out into a public and offer defense of your faith, could you do it? If anybody presented you with a question that, you know, God's evil or he's got some evil in him, would you be able to answer it? So number one, that, that's the basic question that we've been dealing with. How could, a, how could a good God allow injustices? He allowed it with Job. He allowed it with Socrates. Socrates was killed, executed, even though he was a virtuous man. He allowed it with Christ. He allowed it with Boethius. He allowed it with Thomas More. He allows it with martyrs all the time. Good people die precisely because they're good. There's something wrong in the world, and when people stand up to answer it, they're hurt. So the fundamental concern we have is, what is the nature of God in our relationship to him? To get to that, we have to understand our own nature. So the story begins with Lady Philosophy asking Boethius if he really understands his nature or not, or the way he knows. And she says to him very early on, you remember, that the problem with him is that he's lost his memory. It's a case of amnesia, that he's forgotten who he is. And that introduces this theme of anamnesis. The word anamnesis means to recall, to recollect. It's related to the word um, anaphora. It's the Greek word anaphora. Phora, Christophor, Christ bear. Anaphora, phora, bear. It means to bear back, an anaphora, to bear back. So um, Lady Philosophy says to Boethius, you've lost your memory. It's a case of um, amnesia. And um, Boethius knows that he's playing on Plato's theory of knowledge because according to Plato, all knowledge is a form of recollection. That we, we had participated in the divine order at one time, so a good teacher helps somebody just recover what he's already knowing, what he already knows. Um, Aristotle disagrees with that, the church disagrees with it, the church doesn't believe in reincarnation, but it does believe in anamnesis. Do this in memory of me, those are Christ's words. He says, take this, eat this, drink this. Um, we believe that in the Eucharist, we're not just commemorating, remembering Christ, we are anaphora, a born back, fora. Um, um, anaphora, we are born back, carried back, um, to share in with him in a self-sacrificing act. That by participating in the Eucharist, we become one with him. So our whole life is to get back to our beginnings. Our beginnings are with God. He created us in our parents. Our end is with him. And she says to Boethius, the problem with you is you've lost the sense of your beginnings and your ends. If you remembered where you came from and where you're going, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing right now. 
Um, and I pointed out, I just recalled it to everybody, remember that the great themes of the Odyssey and the Aeneid are returning home, the idea of nostos, nostalgia. When we take the Eucharist in one, I, this is so, God, we just lose this. When we take the Eucharist, we're going home. We're returning to be with God. The Odyssey was about going home, nostoi, the, the homecoming, returning home. Nostalgia to recover what we've lost. It'll be, Bob, this goes, it'll be, that'll be the central theme of Dante's Divine Comedy. Dante will be going back home to return to his, the God who made him. The Aeneid, same thing, we saw it, you know, and people miss it. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of buried, but it, you can't miss it. Aeneas has to build a new home, he keeps trying, he fails again and again and again. He gets it all wrong, and he discovers at one point when he gets to Italy that he's actually returning to his ancestral roots. Not Asia, not Europe, not Africa, not America, um, with God. That, our, um, that the beginnings of things with him, we wouldn't be created if he had not been present at the moment of conception when our parents conceived together. So this notion of going home and anamnesis of recovering what we've lost, the Eucharist is that moment when we don't just go back in our heads like a Protestant. We're just not in memory. We're going back in act. We are one with Christ. It's an extraordinary moment. Um, so one of the things that Boethius is making clear is that there is this logos in nature, this goodness in nature, that God is present, calling us back. It's one of the differences between the, is, um, the fundamentalist is, Islam Muslim and the fundamentalist Protestant Christian. Because for both the fundamentalist Muslim and for the fundamentalist Protestant, um, nature's corrupt. Nature's fouled. It's bad. Um, Pope, um, Pope Benedict addressed that problem in, um, in the Regensburg Address. You, if, you, if, you don't, if you're not aware of it, you should look up his Regensburg's Address. It's really important. He said it's one of his great concerns of the modern world because the Islamic fundamentalist has lost a sense of that, and so is the Christian fundamentalist. There is this logos. Nature's not corrupt. That's what the Protestant says. After the after the fall, nature became foul. We're depraved. Um, that's not our faith. Our faith is that we were wounded. We carry wounds, but we're not depraved. Nature is not depraved. There is this goodness at work in nature. And Lady Philosophy is, is trying to help Boethius recover his sense of that and what's going on. Okay. So um, we, we briefly talked about um, the importance of Stoics and the Epicureans. Remember that those are the two philosophies that tore philosophy apart. And remember, it's interesting. Both of them focus on the, this is really, really crucial. The, 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 the work begins, remember, with Lady Boethius chasing the muses out. She calls them these. Lady philosophy. Lady philosophy. She chases the muses out and calls them these something sluts, these awful sluts. Get them out of your life, she tells Boethius. Um, 
because they work up his emotions too much. And he's got to quiet himself. In that early part of the story, she identifies two philosophies that um, were schismatic, in a sense, that attacked the nature of philosophy itself. And interesting, what they both had in common is the emotions. Um, you remember the two of them were the, uh, were the um, um, Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans believed that pleasure was the ruling principle, principle of our life. We should have our desires, do whatever, whatever we wanted to please ourselves. Eat, drink, and be merry, for there is no tomorrow. There's no immortality of the soul. There's no afterlife. So enjoy yourself now. Pleasure your emotions. The Stoics took the opposite position. They took a position that you deny the emotions. If the emotions are bad, if you hope for anything, long for anything, desire anything, you're going to be disappointed. You're just going to be frustrated. So even though Lady Philosophy doesn't see this implicitly, she's making the defense of the soul that will protect both the reason and the, the seat of the emotions, the place of the emotions. But clearly the guide here is the reason. It helps order, direct the emotions. Not make them everything, not deny them, but order them. She's got to help him recover himself. Um, and I'm not going to go th through this right now, but um, I just want to recall quickly two passages. Turn to page 33, just to um, get us ready for chapter 4 here. Um, at the end of book two, she's beginning to make it clear that when anybody sets their mind on wealth or fame or power in order to attain a happiness, they're deceiving themselves because none of those things is lasting. None of them. And at the bottom of 33, she says, the same money, if it were ever collected together from whatever wherever it lies among people into the possession of one man would make all the rest destitute of it. So money can't be the source of defining happiness because um, if, if somebody has it and somebody else takes it away in order to um, equalize the distribution of money, it's going to make some people unhappy. They're going to be losing something. When you speak, your whole voice fills the ears of many hearers to an equal extent. So when you hear a sound, it's equal to everybody in the, let's say you come in and speak, if there are 20 people in the room, everybody will hear you equally. But your riches cannot in the same way be shared equally among many without diminution. So if you speak a sound when you come in, everybody's going to receive it equally. But if you give money, because money is a means of commuting values of things, somebody's going to lose. Somebody's going to have more. Somebody's going to take some from others. So it's something you can't depend on for your happiness. When riches are shared among many, it's inevitable that they impoverish those from whom they pass. How poor, this is really interesting because in one way it seems indirectly a defense of socialism. Because socialism implies an equal distribution of wealth. In fact, I'm going to ask you a question here because I, I mean that's not what he's dealing with, but I want to go there because there's such a pressure. There's this been this repeated effort in history to deal with difficulties by by creating socialistic systems, and they've always failed, historically. When riches are sh shared among, equally among many, without diminution, when riches are shared among many, 
It's inevitable that they impoverish those from whom they pass. How poor and barren riches really are then is clear from the way that it's impossible for many to share them undiminished or for one man to possess them without reducing all the others to poverty. And let me just stop for a second because it's an interesting... He, what he's doing is saying wealth can't be the basis of happiness. Um, in one sense, this seems like um, an apology, uh, an indirect support for socialism. Is it or not? Is this indirectly supporting socialism because that because it means all people will share equally and well? It's just an aside question. It doesn't go to his argument, but I've got to ask it because it it, you know that what's going on politically today is very much in terms of this. Doug, what do you say? I don't know where you are. This is, um, it's at the, it's at the book very, two. It's, it's five, it's section five in book two, and it's right after the poem that ends four. Any, anybody got a thought? I don't, I don't want to dwell on this. It's just, to me, it's an interesting... Well, I... What's the question again? Karen, go ahead. The question is, is does, this, does this seem like an indirect support of socialism? I think it's the opposite. Go ahead, why? Because... It gives you shared misery, shared diminution of your wealth. Yeah. And run out of money somewhere. Yeah. Anybody else? That's in poverty, yeah. Do you? I think indirectly, it's actually, it's indirectly, it's a support of capitalism because at least in capitalism, you can exercise your free will, whatever you do. I, I mean, I don't think he's supporting one or the other. But indirectly, it seems to me it's a support of capitalism because at least in capitalism you have, you can exercise your free will to do something without somebody doing something to take or, you know, tell you how your money is going to be distributed. I think the major point is here that it's it's neither because what he's, I think it goes to Karen's point that that anybody who makes the worth of their lives depend on wealth is going to suffer because wealth will not bring happiness. And you'll have to worry that somebody's going to steal it. From yeah, it, because even if you reach a point where you get comfortable in your wealth and you think you're secure, you're always worrying about holding on to it. Something will happen to take it away. So early on in his argument, he's making it clear that wealth cannot be the ground for a person's happiness. Um, going over to 35 and 6, he's making the point here, it's interesting because it goes to what Melody was saying, I thought just wonderfully a while ago about these animals, you know, all of them um, for a moment suspended in what they're doing, that everybody, all creatures are created with a nature, and he's going to make the point that all things in nature have their place. A lion, a, um, um, a, a hawk, a chicken, you know, a bug, whatever they are. On page 35, he says, 
It seems as if you feel a lack of any blessing of your own inside you, which is driving you to seek your blessings and things separate and external. And so in a being endowed with a godlike quality and virtue of his rational nature thinks that he's his only splendor lies in the possession of inanimate goods, it is the overthrow of the natural order. Other creatures are content with what is their own, but you, whose mind is made in the image of God, seek to adorn your superior nature with inferior objects, oblivious of the great wrong you do to the Creator. Every creature is satisfied in his nature, a tree, an acorn, a hen, they will eat, they will go, they will preserve their nature. A tree will soak up water and earth and but it's only man who wants more and who seeks more outside of his nature. He goes on. Um, if every good is agreed to be more valuable than whatever it belongs to, then by your own judgment, when you account the most worthless of objects as goods of yours you make yourself lower than those very things, and it's no less than you deserve. So, for example, a sheep has wool to cover itself in winter. Sheep's not going to go around moaning because it, you know, it doesn't get... Humans want wool coats, you know, beaver hats, or... You know, it's, it's interesting that of all the creatures in the earth, all creatures are sort of self-sufficient on their own, we're the only one who long for these things as if we needed them when they're not necessary to us. We're, and, and it's interesting, think about this, because in one sense, we're the greatest thing in creation, God made us greater than anything, and we're indigent, we're poor. We need to put on a shirt because otherwise we'll freeze in winter. So we need to make a shirt for ourselves, we need to make a pants. So we're, the, we're the, the most glorious thing in all creation and we're the most ingenuine, the most dependent. But the problem is that in our dependency, we don't just want what's necessary, we've got to have other things as well. And it's that greed that undoes it because it creates fears in us, it makes us anxious about whether we're not going to make it or not. Indeed, the this is, so this is 36, indeed the condition of human nature is just this. Man towers above the rest of creation so long as he recognizes his own nature. And when he forgets it, he sinks lower than the beasts. For other living things to be ignorant of themselves is natural, but for man it's a defect. What an obvious mistake to make, to think that anything can be enhanced by decoration that does not belong to it. It's impossible. There's, um, for, if there is anything striking in the decoration that is what is praised while the veiled and hidden object continues just the same in all its ugliness. Um, his poem is down below in 36, Oh happy was that long lost age content with nature's faithful fruits which knew not slothful luxury they would not eat before due time their meal of acorns quickly found and did not know the subtlety of making honey sweeten wine. So in the garden, we were one with everything, but after we lost that garden, that state, instead of turning to God, um, we turn to things with the spirit of cupidity. We want things more than we should want them. Um, we're greedy and avaricious, and so. Um, so book book two ends with Boethius um, looking at fame 
and beauty and other qualities, wealth, um, to begin her, her lady philosophy's questioning, what's the nature of happiness? What it is that will make men happy? You remember, so the starting point for this, because I, the, the logical steps that he takes to me are complicated, and it's, it's one of the reasons I want to try to go through slowly. She wants to know why he's miserable. She says it's because you've lost a sense of your nature, you're bidding in your ends. She wants to know what happiness is, and um, immediately she begins to look at those things that people turn towards for happiness to show Boethius that true happiness cannot reside in those things. Okay, so that's where we were at the end of book two. Remember the the technique that I wanted to point out to everybody was was what's called the prosy meter technique, that she alternates between prose arguments and little lyric poems. It's really important to not take that for granted. Um, lots of people just treat it like it's a technique, and it's it's just foolish to do that. Um, if we get to Faulkner together, you, you're going to have a big laugh at rhyming, but oops, or even Dante. We'll do it when we get to Dante. It's not just a, an external thing. It's not just a technique in that sense. An argument, hold on to this, everybody. An argument by its nature takes work. To prove a thesis, you have to make the mind work. Everybody knows that. Try to sit down and write a paper in college. Or if you've got a job and your boss tells you to, you know, to make a presentation on X for the business, you know that you to, to make an argument, you've got to use your mind to put a number of steps together, begin with a premise, and go to a conclusion. So you've got to work to make that argument. And anybody listening to you has got to work to hear it, right? A thesis means work. You've got to prove something. It's a labor. In poetry, the poem is presenting something in statements, but it's asking the mind to rest. Because the nature of poetry by itself, even if it's making statements, is put in rhythms, in order. There's a, there's a musical quality to it. There's a closure. There's rhymes, generally. So what he's doing is, and, re and remember, the importance of this is not just technical, it's this. He said to Boethius a number of times, "You're not strong enough yet for the for the you know the 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 bitter medicine that I've got to get you ready." So she's she's constantly making effort to make an argument and then to relax it, to move forward to another argument and relax it. I mean, we use the word. I thought it was really good last week. I mean, I can't remember, but. You know, there's a, a masculine quality to what she's doing. She's using conceptual reason. But there's something very nurturing. She's, she's trying to work with Boethius and um, um, adopts her methods to her, um, him, all the while being tough. She's not going to let up on him. She's not going to feel sorry for She's not going to give in to him. She's not going to give in to pity. She will not do that. She wants him better. So it's not like she's enabling. She is not enabling. She is being tough-minded, but she's very careful in how she goes about helping him. So she's got definite things she wants to get him to. But she uses this method of asking him to work and then allowing a moment of rest in a poem. So it's a little bit like, what do you call that in the heart? The 
the pumping, the systolic and diastolic. What is it? systolic and what? Systolic and diastolic. The systolic and diastolic, and it's that action of the heart where it pumps and relax, pumps and relax, and so it's not just a technical thing. It's it's part of her education um, that she's asking his mind to grasp something and then offering a release, a pleasure, in a beauty, an order in itself. Um, so um, let's look. I want to turn to book through book three and see if we can get through it. But any any questions on book two or what Boe or what Lady Philosophy or Boethius is doing up to this point? This is going to take us to two of the greatest statements, I think, that have ever been made by a philosopher. And by the way, I, I think I've said this before, but I want to say it again. Um, the consolation of philosophy, I think, is one of the, the greatest works of the Middle Age, Christian Middle Ages. And its greatness consists in taking the most important points of classical philosophy before Christ came and assimilating them with Christian principles. You, you have to go through ten volumes of St. Augustine you know, to do justice to him. You have to go through ten volumes of St. Thomas to do justice to him. Boethius has taken this small book and he's managed to put it in a, in a life-threatening situation. Boethius is going to lose his life and bring out of it some of the most important principles of our Christian faith. It's just one of the most amazing works that have ever, that's ever been written, I think. Any questions about two before we go on to three? He's going to get to two statements. One of them, I'm not going to give you the answer because I'm going to ask, it's going to be a test in a minute. Can God do evil? Can God do evil? And if not, why? That's one. And the other is, Boethius is not in this chapter, but in the next chapter, he's going to say, there is no bad fortune. I want everybody to hold on to that for a minute. There is no bad fortune. We're not there yet, but I'm stressing that because the, the argument that we're going to look at right now is going to lead us there. Why is that important? For all of us, because, God, God, it makes me angry at myself. Um, well, it does. I mean, it just, you know, we go through, Boethi's in a position where he's saying, life's not fair. This is bad fortune. I have to suffer this? I didn't do anything wrong. Why should I have to suffer this? It's bad fortune. Bad. It's unjust. How many of us go through the day, I can't, I mean, it embarrasses me to think about it for myself, complaining, whining, I don't deserve this, I deserve better. Why did she do that? Why did he do that? Why don't they do this? Um, why don't they straighten their lives out and, you know, become better? But Lady Philosophy is saying there is no bad fortune. Now stick that in front of our politicians today and see what they would <laughs> see, see what they would do with it, or take it in the center of our domestic homes and our marriages and put that on a wall and see how what a wife and a husband would you know do it. There is no bad fortune. So I'm stressing this right now because that's where we're going. The question we're going to get to is.
does God do evil? Then why do all these bad things happen? And how do you resolve that with this statement that Lady Philosophy will make shortly? There is no bad fortune. So we've got some tough thinking to do here. I hope everybody's clear about that. Does anybody want to stop me with a question before we go on? Because it seems to me the, the, te- the beauty of the book, the tension, is reconciling those two things, bringing those two things together. Okay, turn to um, 47. The beginning of book three, Boethius acknowledges that he's begun to take some comfort with lady philosophy. He says, You are the greatest comfort for an exhausted for exhausted spirits. By the weight of your tenets and the thought, delightfulness of your singing, you have so refreshed me that I now think myself capable capable of facing the blows of fortune. Now remember, the muses were singing. We don't think of Lady Philosophy as singing in verse. She's not one of the muses. And yet Boethius describes what she's doing in terms of singing. I think that's because, and stop and think, Dante will make this clear when we get there. If a philosophy is true, if it is, even if it's in prose, it's got to imply a musical center because it's one with the truth, and it's one with the harmony, the order of truth. So even if it's put in prose, it implies a music, an order, a harmony. The remedies still to come are in fact of such a kind that they taste bitter to the tongue, but grow sweet once they're absorbed. She's praising him for moving along. Um, I begged her to lead on and show me the nature of true happiness without delay, because that's been the question. He was miserable. What is true happiness? Um, what's wrong with you complaining the way you do? You can't answer that unless you ask yourself why you're miserable and what it, what it would be to make you happy. So they're dealing with the question of real happiness, what real happiness is. She says at the bottom of 47, First I will try to describe and sketch the idea of a cause of happiness. Then, with a proper vision of that, you will be able to turn your gaze in a different direction and recognize the pattern of true happiness. So, um, it's going to require a turn on his part. He's going to have to change. Um, she says on 48, In all the care with which they toil at countless enterprises, mortal men travel by different paths, though all are striving to, te- um, to reach one and the same goal, namely happiness, beatitude, which is a good which, once obtained, leaves nothing more to be desired. It is the perfection of all good things and contains in itself all that's good. And if anything were missing from it, it couldn't be perfect because something else would remain outside. I hope that's clear because it's already implying God. If we're looking for true happiness, um, it, it has to be sufficient in itself. It can leave nothing to be desired because if there's more to be desired... Um, the happiness will be incomplete. We will still want more. So whatever the happiness is, it has to be complete in itself. Is that clear? Because she goes on to say, you can have fame and power and pleasure and friendship and family um, 
and still not be happy. You can have one without the others, and even if you had them all, um, you wouldn't be happy because there'd be something more that you'd be missing. Because take any earthly thing, let's take our families, which I'm assuming for most of us is the most priceless thing we have, our marriages and our families, okay? There would be no families without marriage, okay? I'm going to just use a piece of logic if I can for a second. The things that we most value in our lives are our marriages and our families. There would be no family without a marriage. For people to put their family ahead of a marriage would be silly because a family only comes from a marriage. Um, and yet none of those is secure because we know we can lose our husbands and wives, we can lose our kids. So if our happiness depends on them, as soon as we lose them, we're in misery. We're going to be back where Boethius is at the beginning. Yeah? Okay. Um, so all things are susceptible of loss, and if they are, they can't be the ground of real happiness. Turn to 50-51. She's, this is the, the poem then. My pleasure is to sing with pliant strings how mighty, mighty nature holds the reins of things and how she frames her laws in providence which keeps in motion fixed the globe immense. She describes everything in its place, a lion where, where it belongs. On page 51, a bird which chattered noisily when free into a cage is taken from the tree. Open a, open a bird and let the bird go, he'll go back to nature. Everything in nature has its place and wants to go there. The sun into the western sky and western waves descends, where underground a hidden way he wends. Then to his rising in the east he comes. All things seek the place that best becomes. Each thing rejoices when this is retrieved. For nothing keeps the order it received except in rising to its fall. It bend and makes itself a circle without end. It completes itself. It's like a circle. Its end and beginning is itself. By the way, St. Thomas, this is how different our world is from the world we're entering right now. St. Thomas said love was the motion of all things. I want everybody to hear this because it offers a different way of thinking. For a We'll get there with Dante. Love was the motion of all things. Um, that God put everything in motion, so everything, everything partakes of that quality from God. So that when, when a tree longs for water or nutrients from the earth, when a fox hunts for a rabbit to feed its... The modern world might call those instincts or appetites. St. Thomas would call them signs of love, the, the appetitive, the desire, the movement of one thing for another. So in him, he couldn't look out in the world and not find love everywhere. When we look out in the world in terms of science, we see energies, vectors, forces, statistics, probabilities, laws, mathematical equations. So we've lost a sense that love is behind all things. But she, in a sense, is, is giving a sense to that when she says, the bird, the lion, the sun, where underground a hidden way he wends, then to his rising in the east he comes. All things seek the place that best becomes. Each thing rejoices when it's thus... Each each thing in nature is a thing, just like we are. It's a subject. We tend to objectify things. So when we look at a tree, we don't see a subject. Is everybody following that? It's so, 
Each tree is a subject in its own right. It is a thing. It is itself. We tend to objectify with an abstracting mind. This is not the way St. Thomas saw things. He saw a world full of... That's why... That's why God bless. Sorry, getting too excited here. That's why, that's why St. Francis said, Brother, Son, Sister, Moon. He could not look out on a world and not see intimies and loves acting everywhere. Think about how different that is from our world. So in that world, it's, it's as if everything took a joy in being where it was, except man. Because when we lost the garden, we took all of the ordered loves and gave them other forms. We wanted more, we directed them towards ourselves, away from God, towards things. So um, she's saying right now that there is this unity to things. All things seek the place that best becomes. Each thing rejoices when this is retrieved. For nothing keeps the order it received except its rising to its fall it bend and makes a circle without end. That is, in going out, it comes back. Let's say a tree receives water. It receives it into itself and becomes one with it. It's like it completes a circle. Is that clear? It's, um, well, here, let me put it different. Everything in nature is dual in one sense. It, it goes out to something. It communicates something of itself to the world. And it receives something at the same time. So in going out and coming back, it finds itself. It expresses its unity as a, a tree. Everything in nature partakes of those qualities. I, I believe, and you know, and Suzanne, I watched, I mean, Suzanne gardens in a way that I don't. The care that she shows plants amazes me. She is so careful of them. She waters them. She cuts. When we've had plants in the house for a while, she'll cut the stems to shorten so they get water. Those, flat, those plants are offering their beauty. They're intending something. It's like an intention. They're also receiving something for her from her. She's doing something herself. She's going out to them. She's receiving something from them. And in doing that, she's experiencing some wholeness, but that's in herself, within herself, and also between her and nature. Um, is that clear? So everything in nature has shares those qualities, everything. On 51, you earthly creatures, you also dream of your origins, however faint the vision. Remember, she began by saying that the problem with you is you've lost the sense of your beginnings. And it's interesting because he immediately said, he immediately recovered his, his beginnings were from God. Then she said, what are your ends? He had a real problem getting there. But we're arriving at a point where she's saying, you won't know yourself until you know your beginnings and your ends, both. And she's making it clear right now that happiness cannot depend on Things like money or riches or that each thing in nature has its place and man has a special place because he's the only one in creature who can reflect on what he's doing and he has a power of free will to choose what he does. And it's clear at this point that he can, he can want too much and exceed his place 
or want too little, not to bear, you know, what he's been given. But all things in creature have this place, and, and man has this extraordinary place. He's, he's the one thing that is most, most like God. Um, on page 59, she's, she's going through a list of, of those things that men look to for happiness. Wealth, power, fame, beauty. And in every case, she shows that none of them can be lasting because all of them are perishable, ephemeral. She comes to nobility on 59. As for the claim to nobility, no one is blind to the vanity and worthlessness of it. If it derives from fame, it's borrowed. For it clearly is a kind of praise derived from the deeds of one's parents. Fame is the product of praise, and it's logical that if those who are praised that become famous. Now, just go back to that, because that's a stunning, if, if any of you are putting this together, if it derives from fame, it's, borrowed, it's a borrowed nobility, for it's clearly a kind of praise derived from the deeds of one's parents. What was the turning point in the Iliad? What happened when his armor, when he lost his armor, and new armor was created for him? From whom did he get his original set of armor? Melody, sorry, what? He got it from his mother. Yeah. And by the way, it defended him for nine and a half years. It's not like it's nothing. He got it from Thetis. And remember, she got it as a matter of dishonor. Um, in that wedding. He got it from her. We talked about that. The turning point in his life represents that turn where he has to learn to see there's some individual uniqueness, dignity, in every human being. Where did Boethius get this? <clears throat> it's a good reader of Homer, I mean, to begin with. Every human being, if even if we owe things to our parents, all of us have to come to a point where we have to... This is the difference between us and Buddhism. We believe that individuals are good, that each one of us is made in the image of God in some unique way. Each one of us is given something nobody else does. Each one of us can do something nobody else can. Um, so she's taken on all the things um, back on 59. If there's anything good in nobility, I think it's this, that there's a necess necessary condition imposed upon the noble not to fall short of the virtue of their ancestors. We want, to, we, want to, we want to try to honor what we've been given. We owe so much to our parents. But then go down to the poem. Why then proclaim your kin and ancestry? Look whence you came and see who made you, God. No man is base except through sin he quit his proper source to cherish meaner things. We owe our family a lot. We owe God more. So he's taking money, office, power, fame, family, all of it, and showing that none of those can be the ultimate ground of happiness because all of them, each one of them is insufficient by itself and none of them can last. Unless a thing is self-sufficient, unless it's intrinsically good in itself, sufficient on its own, it won't last. To the degree that we we make our happiness depend on those things, 
we're setting ourselves up for miseries. He goes on finally on page 69 to say, Therefore, to avoid an unending argument, it must be admitted that the supreme God is to the highest degree filled with supreme and perfect goodness. Going back over, it's in the beginning of um, this section 10, he says, he's trying to find out what the supreme good is. It's the good that contains all the others, except in itself it's sufficient in a way none of the others is. His wealth is sufficient on itself. No, it can be taken away. Fame honor, ancestry, you name it, every one of it is susceptible to loss or diminution. He says in the beginning of 10 on page 68, the first question to ask is, I think, whether any good of this kind I defined a moment ago can exist in the natural world. This will prevent our being led astray from the truth of the matter before us by false and ill-founding reasoning. But the existence of this good and its function as a kind of fountainhead of all good things cannot be denied. For everything that is said to be imperfect is held to be so by the absence of perfection. We see degrees of perfection in the world, a flower, a bug, a, a, a hawk, an animal, whatever, our home, each other. But they all imply a greater perfection that we lack and desire. That's why we strive for it. So that if a certain imperfection is visible in any class of things, it follows that there is also a proportion of perfection in it. For if you do away with perfection, it's impossible to imagine how that which is held to be imperfect could exist. Is that clear? How could we judge? How could we say a thing's imperfect unless we had some notion of perfection? Right? Is that clear? If you look at a flower, when Suzanne's looking at a flower, when she buys flowers, say, and she comes back and says, these are not good flowers, that the, um, Kroger's didn't take care of this, you know. She's doing that because she has an image of some perfection in her. Otherwise, how could she say that? Whatever judgments we make about the imperfections of something imply something perfect. What is that one thing that is perfect above all other things? The natural world did not take its origin from that which was impaired or incomplete, but issues from that which is unimpaired and perfect, and then denigrates into a fallen and worn out condition. Go on 69. Since nothing can be conceived better than God, everyone agrees that that which is no superior is good. Reason shows that God is so good, we're convinced that his goodness is perfect. So here's where she's going. She's saying that all these other things that we look to, happiness, pleasure, power, all of them exist in God. But he's different from all these other things because he's complete in himself and he's inherently lasting. Now let's just be clear for a second. If God was created by something else, would he be complete or perfect? Is everybody clear? If he's if he's was created by something else, it means there's something greater than he is, or he's incomplete. That's why we say in our creed, in the beginning was you know that nobody created God; he is. That's why he's called being. There was nothing before him, nothing after. He's uncreated. 
Because if he were created, it means there's something greater than he is. Can he be complete if there's something still outside of him that he doesn't contain? No, because he'd be incomplete. So God is complete goodness. All things are in him. He didn't create himself. He didn't. There wasn't something before him. He is being itself. So she says, 69, but we have agreed that perfect good is true happiness so that it follows that true happiness is to be found in the supreme God. Good. Or sorry, good? Sorry. I've got supreme God. Suzanne and I have different translations. Let me stop just for a second because this is so cruel, I mean so crucial. <sighs> hmm. Can God ever change? If he's complete good, how could he change to become something more than he is? And how could he change to become something less than he is? If God, if God is complete in himself, it means there's nothing greater than he is. He can't be less than he is. If we are to be happy at all, philosophy is saying, we can only be happy if we hold him as our complete good. If we make anything greater than God, we love money or power or fame, attention, our own excellence, you name it. We're setting ourselves up for a misery because none of those things will last. There's only one thing that's eternal. There's only one thing that will eternally satisfy our desires. That's an eternal good. So, in book three, from chapters one through eight, philosophy was looking at false, false sources of happiness, those things that seem to offer us complete happiness when they don't. From nine to the end, she's going to deal with those things that are um, the source of genuine happiness. It's only in those things that we can ultimately finally be happy. I want to be really clear. Is she saying that money or pleasure or nobility are bad? No. Is everybody clear? She's not saying, so this is not Manichaean. It's not good evil. It's not a Protestant saying everything in the, everything's depraved. It's only by the grace of God. She's saying that the, the danger is, is when we make these things the source of our ultimate happiness, we make a mistake because all of them are perishable. And each one of them in itself doesn't offer a completeness. We can have fame and not have power so we can lose it. We can have a family and not have money and go poor. I mean, we can, we can have any of those things. And we can even have all of them, but even all of them in themselves wouldn't constitute happiness because any one of them could be lost. So the real ground of happiness has to lie elsewhere. It's in a goodness that is self-sufficient, that's intrinsically good and not ephemeral, that's everlasting, that won't perish.
that good is the source of our happiness, whatever it is. And she says that that good is God. On, in chapter 11, she starts to talk about the qualities of this goodness and says that the first one is unity. She says in 74, We prove then, haven't we, that the various things that the majority of men pursue are not perfect and good, for the reason that they differ one from another, and because they're lacking to one another and cannot confer full and perfect good. On the other hand, true goodness does not come about when they're brought together into one form and efficient power, as it were, so that sufficiency becomes identical with power, reverence, glory, and pleasure, unless all are one and the same thing, they have no claim to be included among worthwhile objects of pursuit. The only thing that can do that is this ultimate goodness. On page 75, a few lines down, the very body too, so long as it remains in one form, through the combination of its members, you see a human figure, but if the parts are divided up and separated, the body's unity is destroyed. It ceases to be what it was. You may run through every other thing and it will be clear beyond a shadow of a doubt that everything subsists as long as it's one, but perishes when its unity ceases. All things in creation have their existence by being that one thing and not another. So unity is one of the defining qualities of a goodness to things. A bug is a bug and not a lion. Um, it, it, its life depends on its unity. Um, when it loses it, it loses itself, um, its goodness, whatever goodness it has. So she talks about um, all things desiring unity. She says on 77 at the bottom, I admit that what just now seemed uncertain to me, I can now see without any doubt it. Now, whatever seeks to subsist and remain alive desires to be one. Take unity away from a thing and existence too ceases. That's true, so that all things desire unity. If we took off our head, if we cut out our heart, we could cut off a, an arm and a leg and still sustain because um, those things are, are not one with our essence. You know, somebody can be born without a, I mean, our essence is a man, is a body, and a soul. But if we lose anything essential to that essence, we die. Um, we can't go on. Um, so that all things seek the good, which you could describe by saying that it is goodness itself which all things desire. What the end of all things was, for certainly it is the same as that which all things desire. We have deduced that this goodness it's goodness, and that we must agree that the end of all things is the good. All of us longs for this goodness. Everything that we desire takes that form. Our home, our marriages, our kids, our food, the cars, they all partake in some goodness in some way, um, or we wouldn't desire them. Now go to the end, because we've got to wind this up. On page 80, she's, she's made an argument, and in a number of poems, she's described God as the ruler of all creation, keeping everything in their place, 
um, giving them a goodness that, that comes from the way he created them. And he created man in a, um, in a special way because he made him most like him in his image. <clears throat> um, but what distinguishes him from all the other sources of happiness is that he is complete goodness in itself, so he will answer all man's desires, whatever they are. All longings will be satisfied. Fame, glory, pleasure, money, whatever. Um, page 80. So that it's by his goodness that he rules all things, since he rules them by himself, and we've agreed that he is the good. It is this which is the helm and rudder, so to speak, by which the fabric of the universe kept constant and unimpaired. I strongly agree. I believe you, she said, for now I think you're, begin you're bringing your eyes to look with greater care upon the truth. What I'm going to say is no less clear to the sight. What is that? Since we're right in thinking that God controls all things by the helm of goodness, and all things, as I said, have a natural inclination towards the good, all things a tree, a bug, it can hardly be doubted that they are willingly govern and willingly obey the desires of him who controls them as things that are in harmony and accord with their helmsmen. So from that perspective, we're going to see this in Donnie, all things in the universe um, work together to form a song. I'm not being metaphorical, you guys. Gene Kurtziker, who was one of the my colleagues at UD, who was a novelist, um, I can't. He said, "This is my one of the the um, you call it the epigrams." At the beginning of his novel was something like, "This is my song to the universe," because Gene saw the universe as a song. I'm not kidding. I mean, that's the way he saw it. It's like Francis, brother, son, sister, moon. That this is the way they saw things then. Um, um, it's necessary so, for it would hardly seem a happy government if it were like a yoke imposed upon willing necks instead of a willing acceptance. Of, I'm going to go back to, um, where are you? Um, where did you go, Maria? When I asked all you guys last week if chance, how did I put it? What was the question? That, that so, many, so many scientists today say the universe is ruled by chance. What's the evidence that that's not so? Melody, are you, I see you moving your lips back, but... Well, it's because Maria knows it. <laughs> she's the one who said that that there's a um, a connection in with nature and everything. There's a system to it. It's things just don't happen by chance. There is a systematic um, part of nature, and God or something um, extraordinary must have put that into place. We know that as God. We know that God did that, and it's not just nature's not just up to chance so yeah. maria speak up I, I, she's talk. not i can't i can't see her mike did you have a did you have a response i can see your logo blinking 
I said it last week, so now someone else should say it. No, no, you come. I didn't know you were there. Now that I knew you, no, come on, let's have it. What, what, why, what's wrong with scientists who say the universe is governed by chance? Because um, if it's by chance, you could never study it. That's what she said. Yeah. Here, Saint Thomas will say the chance occurs only random, rarely. Um, if you say that everything's chance, it means everything's random, there, there's no order, nothing to study. But all the facts show just the opposite. There's this great regularity everywhere in the universe. What it shows is a mind and an intelligence, not chance. Because if it were chance, everything would be flying off into space. I mean, Maria's right. We, we would have no science <laughs> because there'd be nothing to study. Everything would be chaos. As soon as you wanted to study one thing, it would be gone. So there's this great harmony in the universe. 80, page 80. There's nothing, therefore, which could preserve in its own nature and still go against God. To go against God would be to go against everything in you. I mean, people do that. On page 81, she says, You have no doubt heard how in mythology the giants began attacking heaven. They were kindly but firmly set to order, that all things come back into order, all things are restored. Wherever we do something against God, that's why tra the end of tragedy, every tragedy we read, is always preparing for a new order. Some evil has been answered to prepare for a goodness to come. No one could doubt that God's omnipotent. She's asking a question about him. Does, is there anything he doesn't know? Is there anything he can't do? Yeah. Though at any rate, who is his right mind, would have doubts about it. But there's nothing that an, in, an omnipotent power could not do. No. Then can God do evil? No. So that evil is nothing, since that is what he cannot do, who can do anything. Now, can somebody put that in your own words? Maria, <laughs> Michael, anybody, Doc. That's why evil is a deprivation. Well, can can you all hear Doc? Can you can you? So, why can um, wait wait? Can you let Doc? Why cannot you want? So she said, go ahead. Maria, go ahead. Okay, um, maybe it because. Doing evil is a way of destruction, um, and God creates, and that's love. Okay. So, um, people, we we are not perfect in love. So when we when we do when evil happens, I think it's because there is that uh, lack of lack of love and destruction going on yeah goodness too if god is complete goodness can he do evil doc what was your answer evil is a privation it's it's the lack of lack of goodness the lack of god um so so if god is all good he can't do evil and since he because can because he can do anything 
if you can't do evil, it's nothing. It's it's a logically, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lack of it's a lack of goodness. Did it? Can you can you all hear Suzanne? Did you all hear? I'm not sure they heard you, Doug. You say it then. If God, let's see if I can do this. If God is all goodness and complete goodness, that's what he, he lacks nothing. That's by definition. He's self-subsistent goodness. Can God do evil? Can he do something against his nature? He can't and still be complete goodness because that's, if that's what God is. So if evil means anything, it means nothingness, absence. Evil's a privation. This is really important. There's some philosophy, and all, it's really interesting how many of these philosophies come out of the East. There's a philosophy, Zoroasterism, that holds that good and evil are intertwined in an eternal struggle. They can't be separated. If, if evil is eternal, why not choose it? It's a stupid philosophy. It's truncated. It's cut short. If God is complete goodness, evil has to be nothing, an absence. God can't go... If he's complete evil, can he do anything to diminish his goodness? To if take it away? Goodness. Huh? If he's complete goodness, not yeah. complete evil. Sorry, if he's complete... If he's complete goodness... Let me start over. If God is complete goodness, can anything be added to him to increase his goodness? No. Because if it is, it means he's not complete goodness. He is being itself. That's what he is. If he's complete goodness in itself and that's his nature, can he do anything against his own nature? Can he do anything to take his goodness away? No, or he wouldn't be complete goodness. The reason I'm saying this, this is really important, um, in, the, in the paper that Benedict delivered at Regensburg, he was responding to um, um, an Islamic Muslim who was what's called a voluntarist. Voluntarism is the, is the philosophic position that the will is greater than the mind. It has a primacy over the mind. The will has a primacy over the mind. And so he argued that if God wanted to do evil, he could. Without I mean, God could do that. We don't believe that. If God is complete goodness, he doesn't lack anything. He can't do evil be without changing his nature. So if evil exists at all, evil is a privation. It can't be a positive thing. It always, it's always destructive. It always takes away life. That's its... So, Satan was a creature. He, he was not created evil. He was created good. But because he turned from God, everything he did from that point on worked to undermine God, to, to try to s destroy him. And ever since then, there's this battle. And we, that's our belief until end times when God's going to end it all. Let me put it a different way. If we believe that God is complete and evil came into existence when the angels turn against him, and they, they, Satan tempted Eve, and she tempted Adam, and we've got the human fall, so we can commit evil. God allows it because he's trying to pr protect our free will. We've been going through that. Can anything ever overcome God? Ever. If he's complete goodness. No. No matter what, this is Boethius' point, no matter what goes on, no matter how bad, 
no matter how bad the battles go, there will always be something, some good greater. Our belief is no evil can ever overcome God. No matter how, so let's say we live in a family and somebody does something evil and those we love are killed. It will be an awful experience. There should be in us some hope, belief, that that's going to be answered. We're asked to forgive them, go on. But our belief is that no evil can ever be great enough. It, makes, it just makes no sense. That's why Boethes is saying here the way she does it. Um, so God's omnipotent. He can do He can do everything, but there's nothing that an infinite could not do. He can do everything. No. Then God can do evil. No. So that evil is nothing, since that is what He cannot do. Who can do anything? The one thing He cannot do is go against His nature, because He is inherently good, self-sufficient goodness in itself. He is being. Nothing before, nothing after. All things are contained, created in him. He created the world as a free act of love. Um, it's a gift. Um, his goodness will, um, will never be defeated. She goes on at this point, we've got to stop here. She goes on at this point to say that one of the most amazing things for us as humans is that we can participate in a divine goodness so that by sharing in his goodness we can share in something divine we're almost out of time i want to ask this last question the the, the chapter three ends with this um, poem about orpheus if you know the orpheus myth orpheus orpheus lost his beloved and was allowed to go into the underworld to get her Orpheus is the image of all poets. He's a singer. He tamed the, the stones, the trees, the birds, the animals. His harmony helped tame things, make them good. He was allowed to go into the underworld to retrieve his beloved on one condition, that he not look back. Um, page 83. Um, the, um, by Orpheus singing tamed in days, the furies who avenge men sinned, who at the guilty tears grin, let tears of sorrow from them steal. <clears throat> no longer does the turning wheel, Ixion's head, send whirling round. He tamed everything. He was the poet. He starts to go up the cave with his beloved on page 84. Until from night, until from night she reaches day. But who to love can give a law? Love unto love itself is law. It goes to actually Maria's point that Love brings everything into being. It's a free act. It's a free act of God. Alas, close to the bounds of night, Orpheus backward turns to his sight, and looking, lost her twice to fate. He had already lost her once because she died. Now he had a chance to recover her, but only on the condition that he not look back. He looks back, and in that moment, she's gone. You who seek the upward way to lift your mind unto the day, for who gives in and turns his eye back to the darkness from the sky loses while he looks below all that up with him may go why does she end this why does chapter three end with this story of orpheus why is it so important here this is an important poem for the next step we're going to take in books four and five why is 
Boethius ending this section with that Orpheus story. Mary Jane, did you have a thought? I did have a thought. Maybe looking back means going back to, reverting back to what you were before. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I, I just want to give the weight of that because I, I think you're on it. Just give this some thought because the whole trip, if we look at this as a journey through the end of book two and through the greater part of three, was um, to teach Boethius that, remember, she, when she began this, she said, you're the problem. It's not the world. That you, you've lost a sense of who you are. You're blaming everybody. You're whining. The, the world's bad. The world is always bad. It's going to be bad. You've lost your way. You have no sense of your beginnings. You have no sense of your end. You've got amnesia. This anamnesis has taken in. And she starts giving him this hard medicine. And the hard medicine is that you... You you love philosophy once you studied you know these things and you forgot the. If you make your happiness depend on wealth, fame, which he did, he was a renowned senator, power, wealth, pleasure, whatever. Um, you're setting yourself up for disappointment because you're going to lose them all. Um, it's only when you set your mind and your heart on this eternal good. Remember, go back to my point. Is she saying all these other things are bad? No, she does not. What she's saying is, if you make any of those things more important than God, you yourself are creating your own problems. Because when you lose them, you'll have only yourself to blame. So at this point, she's, we're given the story of Orpheus because, to go to Jane's point, if he looks back at this point... <laughs> He's going back. I mean, her word was a good reversion, reverting, you know. Um, just for other examples, Dante is going to have a similar moment, by the way, when we get to Dante. But think about what happened. If you know the biblical story in Genesis, what was going on with Lot and his sons? All of Lot's sons were engaged in all these sexual activities that were um, not good for the family. And God was angry and told Lot to get out of Sodom. And if you remember the biblical description, they're leaving and they were told not to look back. What happens in their exit? Do you remember? Connie. You? Yeah, she turns into a pillar of salt. Yeah. Why? Why, Connie? Can you flesh that Why? out? Because she, her, her curiosity, she wanted to go back and she wanted to, you know, I guess maybe thinking of her family and... Um, you know, but he specifically told him not to not to turn back. Yeah. If your mind and heart have been on those things, and those things are becoming bad, looking back means you don't want to give them up. You're still mm -hmm. there. So turning into a pillar of salt, in some ways, I th I think is an image of despair. The way it hardens you when you're asked to give something up. I mean, the biblical image is really telling here. Boethius would have known it too. It's absolutely crucial that Boethius not look back at this point. If he's going to go forward, he's got to learn to give those things up. Remember, he's going to be executed. When Lot's wife turned back, she was turned into a pillar of salt because she didn't want to let those things go. Um, her heart was there. And whatever, despair, anger, self-pity, I mean, whatever word you want to cast on it is, she turned hard. Instead of going on and leaving them behind, 
if you went back. So this, the end of book three, is a crucial stage in Boethius's journey. And it's interesting that that stage ends with that image. That's how serious things are right now. So the, the, what's ahead of us is what's... Because remember, she's been saying, you're not strong enough yet for... You know, she's got she's to keep toughening him up. So my question is, what's going on in book four? What's so important that it required Boethius not to look back? That's how big this thing is, what's coming up in four and five. That Lady Philosophy is going to show, go beyond where she's, you know, taking him, that this is the ground for true happiness. You've got to learn to put these things in perspective. That there's some greater good that you have to learn to give your will to. Something greater is coming. What is that? So next week we'll look at four, maybe five, but um, I, I want to be careful here because I, there's, we'll either do four and five or we'll just do four. We'll see how it goes. But anyway, that's where we're going. So you guys have a good week. Um, enjoy your reading. They're, they're short chapters. They're not long, but they're really deep. There's a, there's a, lot, of, a lot of meaning in these things. So... Um, if we could all keep each other in prayers, um, Connie will keep your mother-in-law in prayers and Joe too. And, um, and, um, Melody, I hope your husband has a safe trip and you guys all take care. Okay. Thank see you, you so much. See you next week. Thank you, Bob. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, thank you all.